Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back. We are starting today in Luke chapter 10 at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, just by way of quick review before we jump in here, the disciples at this point in the gospel have been with Jesus for some time, and things have started in the recent chapter or two to get very serious. Jesus is talking about dying and talking about the cost of following him. And now they're on their way to Jerusalem for the next number of chapters as things are kind of heating up about Jesus. And he's already just recently sent out the 12 to do ministry in his name. And where we pick up here, Jesus is sending out 72 others. So um, hopefully you've had a chance at this point to already read the passage and kind of retell it and reread it and just make sure you understand really uh, what's going on there in the narrative. When we see that he sends out 72 people, uh, some translations say 70, um, just going by the best manuscripts that we think that we have, uh, 72 seems like probably the original number that Luke chose to, uh, to use there as he was uh, telling of what actually happened. There's very similar instructions, if you remember, um, in this passage to what Jesus gave the 12 uh, just a, a few weeks ago that we talked about when he sent them out. Basically, bring no provisions, preach the kingdom and heal, right? So very similar here as he sends out 72 others to minister in his name. If we made a formula for this mission work, what would that look like? What would the step-by-step -step be if we made a formula of this? First, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. That's a good first step in mission. Second, go your way. Um, go out and do it two by two. Thirdly, we may say, be warned, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Fourth, meet people and see if you are received with peace and with hospitality in verses five and six. And then if you are, then stay there and, and eat and heal and preach the kingdom. If you're not received, then wipe the dust off your feet and preach the kingdom still and leave. So either way, you're going to preach the kingdom of God. Kind of a, a little bit of a formula we see there now. Is that supposed to be an exact formula for us? Uh, no, I don't think so. Some things may change on our context, right? In fact, uh, you see here that they're not supposed to take any provisions with them. Later, we'll get to Luke chapter 22, where he's like, do you remember that? See how I provided everything? Okay, but now you can actually take these things for where we're going now. Um, so it's not always that we have to bring nothing with us. Uh, this is a specific ministry in specific uh, cities and towns, a little different maybe than the towns that the 12 had gone to. So that's not meant to be a formula. So it's not exact here, but I would say that there's a whole lot that we can learn. And maybe this will come up in your discussion, but a whole lot we can learn from this mission. Two by two, I think is a great way to just say it's better not to go at a specific mission alone pray earnestly. Again, how practical could that be? Before you do anything, go anywhere, say anything, pray, and then watch out what you pray for, because you pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers, and then Jesus says, okay, now you go. I'm providing through you. I like to try to think when I'm praying for somebody and something that's going on in their life, as I'm praying, thinking, well, maybe God would stir me to actually be the one to help to meet that need. And then I think we can always kind of follow what God is supernaturally doing ahead of us, knowing that some are going to receive us and um, maybe we don't even know why. They just, our peace kind of rests on them and, are, um, and, and then other people reject us. We don't really know why, but this is the work of God that seems to be going on before us, 
right? And I think we can learn a great deal from that. And regardless, wherever we go, we're to preach the kingdom of God and just to kind of follow along with, with what God's doing. It isn't a hard plan to understand. Maybe it's hard to have the courage to follow, but it's not hard to understand. In fact, Daryl Bach says this. Interestingly, Jesus says little about method, nor does he give his followers a developed message. Okay, there's not a lot to it. He says their ministry is to minister to needs, to reveal God's power, and to share where that power has come from. He says, many are intimidated to share Jesus because they feel they don't know what to say. Jesus sends out the 72 and tells them simply to give of themselves and point to the presence of God. Sometimes we make evangelism more difficult than it needs to be. So I wonder, could we look at this? Could we say, I can, I can do some of these things. I can take cues from how Jesus told these people to make disciples. Um, when it talks about saying that the kingdom of God, proclaiming the kingdom of God has come, we've talked quite a bit about this in recent weeks, but that kingdom, we say, is both here and now, and it is still yet to come. The kingdom is here now. If you look in verse 9, Jesus says to say to those who receive you on this mission, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So, People are being healed of diseases and demons are being cast out uh, with, with the presence of the disciples commissioned by Jesus, with them there with them. It's not just something that the kingdom will happen to those towns, but it is happening to them. It has approached them. Some translations even say the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, it's here. Uh, Daryl Bach again says, to announce the kingdom is not to say that everything associated with Jesus' authority is now manifest, for he also taught that there are things he will do when he returns. But the rule of God through Jesus has begun. The power to deliver from Satan's power has started to work itself out in history and among humanity. So some of that is here right now for those who will receive it. But the kingdom is also still to come. If you look at verse 11, um, Jesus says to say to those who, who don't receive you, he says, nevertheless, the kingdom of God has come near. Now, I don't know if you notice the difference between that. Verse 9, the kingdom of God's come near to you. And verse 11, the kingdom of God has come near. That's not a misprint. That's translating the words that were put there. To those who reject the kingdom, they know the kingdom not quite in the same full sense that it has come upon you. Okay? That... That near to you, first used in verse 9, is like those who are receiving it, you're experiencing it. It's something that to some extent has been realized now among you. But then to those who reject, it's, it's near, like it's, it's, it's kind of passing by right in front of you and you're, you're missing it. Then Jesus transitions in verse 13 to talk about a, a future day of the kingdom, a day of judgment. And that's for those who, again, have rejected the kingdom and especially for those who have um, judgment, for those who have uh, rejected it, even after experience, so, such a closeness of God's kingdom with Jesus and his apostles and disciples. When you reject them, there's great judgment for that. So, so God's kingdom, or as I like to say, that environment where creation lives as it was created to live and is free from sin, that is, and the power of sin, and the effects of sin, that is available now to those who receive Jesus and his messengers. But his kingdom won't fill the earth entirely until 
judgment happens on those who reject Jesus and his messengers. So it's happening now for some, and it is still to come in one way or another for, for all, right? Um, what, one more thing here. I'm thankful that verse 16 points out that when rejected, people are not rejecting us. They are rejecting Jesus. And also note that when we are on mission, like the 72, we are speaking, get this, on Jesus's behalf. Do you hear that? When someone is hearing you speak his message, they are hearing Jesus through you. Incredible, incredible, important message we have to give. And their accountability then is to Jesus and not you. Um, apparently, they were um, also casting out demons, not just healing diseases. And so they come back to Jesus, right? And they're pumped. And when Jesus says this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. There's different maybe understandings of what that means. Maybe that was um, in ages past. Isaiah 4, 14, 12 talks about when Satan fell from heaven, kind of befall the before the fall of humanity in the garden, Adam and Eve. And maybe Jesus is saying, hey, don't be too proud, disciples, at what you can do, because you too could fall just like powerful Satan fell. Um, maybe he's talking about this contemporary kind of circumstance where the mission of the 72 was for Jesus, like seeing Satan be defeated. Like, yes, this is a big deal. As you guys are doing this, one good translation says, Jesus says, I was watching or seeing Satan fall. Okay. So maybe it's what he's experiencing right then, or maybe it's a future eschatological event to come, um, like Revelation describes. I don't really know which one it is, but overall, I would just say this, and maybe more the point of it is a, a ranking of the significance of certain supernatural events. Okay, There's lots of supernatural things that happen. Uh, Satan falling like from heaven, one of them, the disciples able to tread on scorpions and serpents and Satan and, and evil without getting hurt, right? There's all these supernatural things that happen among many others. If you saw these things, uh, let alone if you were able to do these things, you might think, wow, there is, there is nothing more incredible than that we have power over spiritual darkness, right? But there is. If you think about it, demons kind of come and go, right? And and some people, Matthew 7, can even cast out demons who don't even know Jesus, okay? Um, Satan comes and eventually will go. So their defeat, though great things, doesn't compare, this is Jesus' point, to the eternal life that you have secured in the Lord. And I think that's really good for us to remember when either we are doing great things in Jesus' name or we are wishing that we could do great things or greater things in Jesus' name. And I think what we might learn here is, is don't get too caught up in that. The greatest thing has been accomplished. What we rejoice in, that we have victory over death, that we have eternal life. And all of the other victories over darkness, like God will empower when and where and how he wants to use us to display his power, okay? Great. But that's not the main event. It's all pointing to the greatest supernatural phenomenon worthy of all of our greatest rejoicing that Jesus has brought to us eternal life. Not just resurrection from the dead, but life forever. 
Rejoice in that, okay? Make sure you're looking at the priority or the importance and ranking those appropriately, all of these supernatural events that happen. Uh, moving into the next section, I can imagine Jesus just loving, kind of blowing the minds of these young disciples. Um, maybe the Trinity in ages past was planning this big reveal, like, hey, Father, Son, Spirit, we're going to reveal ourselves and that the Messiah is actually the son of God, Jesus, it's you, and the salvation is not just for the Jews, it's for everyone, and that that is going to mean everlasting life. And we're going to reveal these things, not to prophets or kings or wise philosophers, we're going to open the eyes of children like these disciples. And isn't it cute how they're so excited about being able to cast out demons, but just watch them as we show them that they are invited into the eternal kingdom of God. It's to little children that the Father and the Son choose to reveal the hidden things of God, including little children like the disciples. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that says this. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, the type of person you expect to receive important messages. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. My paraphrase, y'all are dumb. <laughs> you didn't figure out your salvation. God revealed it to you. And then Paul goes on and continues um, in verse 9 of chapter 2, 1 Corinthians. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Listen, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. It's not the wise and understanding who figure it out. They can't. God reveals it to the humble. I wonder maybe what also that might tell us about who we focus our evangelistic efforts on. Uh, the last section here, this is kind of entering into a new section, maybe kind of a new topic. Um, what I wonder did the lawyer hope to accomplish in his testing of Jesus with these questions? It sounds like to me, he wanted to feel good about himself. He wanted, verse 29 says, to justify himself. Like, okay, I'm doing the right thing, so I deserve my eternal life. In the parable, the man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he's a Jew since he was up in Jerusalem and he is getting, he got beat up, right? So that would be kind of a common thing, unfortunately. Jerusalem to Jericho, 17 miles of uh, like caves and stuff that robbers could hide in and jump out and beat you up. One commentator said it's like going through the inner city in the middle of the night. It's just a, it's a bad spot, right? And so this Jew gets beat up. Um, good Samaritan. Remember, the Jews and Samaritans, they don't get along. So the Jews, this lawyer thinks the Jews, uh, the Samaritan's a bad person. Um, in fact, good Samaritan, what we call this story, is kind of an oxymoron to a Jewish person. But the lawyer asks... Who is my neighbor? And I wonder, what is he really asking? I think he's asking, how can I limit my responsibility to love? He wants to do just what he has to do. But Jesus goes way beyond 
what someone should do just to justify themselves. Notice what the Samaritan gives up by helping this Jewish man. He gives up his time, that, that very moment, and then his entire day and evening and the next morning and whatever it takes to go back and repay. He gives up his, his cleanliness. He's, he's touching this guy that's been beat up, maybe getting bloodied himself. He gives up his, his energy. He gives up his money, the cost of the oil and the wine and anything else that's going to be needed to take care of this guy. So much that he gives up. And why did he give all of that up? Is it because he felt as though he had to do it to justify himself? No, look at verse 33. When he saw him, he had compassion. In my opinion, a, a better translation, he felt compassion. To feel compassion goes beyond trying to justify yourself, but it involves who you are. If you're asking, well, who is my neighbor? You might be asking, who do I have to love to check the box or to feel good about myself? Jesus said, it's not so much about who you have to love, but who are you? As a neighbor. It's not about figuring out who your neighbor is, but are you a good neighbor? That's what Jesus kind of turns the tables in verse 36. He says, who proved to be a neighbor to the man who needed it? The Samaritan didn't see the beaten man and think to himself, well, I wonder if that's my neighbor. I wonder if I have to. No, he felt compassion because of who he was. And so he didn't even have to ask that question, who is my neighbor? He was Moved by love. So Jesus kind of turns the question from the lawyer, who is my neighbor, to, sir, who are you? And do you love? I. Howard Marshall said, failure to keep the commandment springs not from lack of information, but from lack of love. And then we're left in this with a very clear command from Jesus. Now, you go and do the same. You go and show mercy. I think, wow. We've got to evaluate our hearts in this. I have to evaluate my heart in this. Do, do I help others out of obligation, thinking that that's going to gain me something from God? Do I even feel compassion for people who need help, especially if they're an enemy of mine? Difficult things to consider, but good. So let's take some time to discuss now these sections of Scripture and make some applications together.